When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello and welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farah Jassat, your host. This week we ask, how should we rethink economics in a world of finite resources? We've asked Oxford economist Kate Rayworth to speak to the RSA's Matthew Taylor on her theory of donut economics. Let's go to Daniel, the producer of this week's podcast. Daniel, why another economics podcast? We've had quite a few recently on Intelligence Squared. Yeah, I mean, our, our listeners may have noticed we've had quite a few economists on the show recently whether that's been Mariana Mazzucato or Linda Yu or Jesse Norman. And it, it kind of has been a coincidence. But we did really want to draw attention to Kate Rayworth because she's got some fascinating ideas about the economy, um, specifically on economic growth and how that relates to sustainability. Um, and she's completely rethinking economics as we know it. Brilliant. Well, let's now go straight to the discussion. If you're interested in hearing more about our podcasts and live debates, you can join our mailing list at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Twitter at Intelligence2. Hello, I'm Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the RSA. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. Now, it's my great pleasure to be here with Kate Rayworth, who's economist at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute uh, and famously author of the book Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. Hi, Kate. Hi. Um, Let's start from the very beginning, which is tell us what Donut Economics is. Well, I suppose that makes me say what the donut is, right? This ridiculous word I've gone and put at the centre of my career and lost any sense of gravitas thereafter. Do you ever regret it? <laughs> no, no. Because made... it could have been anything circular, couldn't I it? I know. It was nearly a life belt. It could have been a bagel, but it was a donut. No, I don't regret it because it's forced me to be playful. And I've realised there's so much freedom and uh, so much to do in that space. So it's, not, I, it's totally inappropriate and wrong for us to just persist on the donut theme. But, um, <laughs> you know, there are there are two types of donut as well. Mm-hmm. So you, really, it's ring donut. It, econo- it, it, <laughs> it's, it not, is. it's not jam donut economics. That's it, another book. It's <laughs> toric donuts. It's analyst donuts, however you want to put it. It's ring donut with a hole in the middle. It's definitely not the one with the jam. Right. So the donut is a diagram I drew in 2012. And it's a depiction of one way of defining human prosperity in the 21st century. We want to leave nobody in the hole in the middle, nobody falling short on the essentials of life, but we can't overshoot the outer ring, the planetary boundaries of the earth system processes on which we depend for this planet to support and sustain us. So the simplest way I can describe what the donor aims for is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the planet. That's a concept. Then I brought the intellectual baggage of my frustration with my economics education to it. And I thought, if if this is the goal of human prosperity in the 21st century, to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet, what kind of economic mindset will give us the best chance of getting there? Because I'm sure as hell it ain't the one I was taught. 
So just to add to this kind of the, the, the visuals of this, and I'm going to come back to your fascination with the use of kind of pictures and graphs and their importance. Uh, the way to think about our current economy, if you think of your donor, is that there's where we actually are in terms of meeting human needs is that we are inside the circle that you want us to be in. That is to say, there's a lot of human need that's not being met and only moving very slowly towards the point at which all human needs, basic human needs are met. But the other part of the economy is way outside the donor and heading off with acceleration, accelerating away from where it ought to be. Is that an accurate? Difference? Absolutely. We're, we're, we're beyond the boundaries on both sides. Millions of people worldwide still fall short on the essentials of life. They live in that hole in the middle, can't meet their needs for food, health, education, housing, energy, political voice. And yet we've already overshot over these planetary boundaries on climate change, on biodiversity loss, on excessive land use, fertilizer use. So when you put those together, you see that humanity's challenge this century is unique and um, quite a big one to, for the first time in human history, to meet the needs of all people, to eliminate that poverty and deprivation, but to do it while coming back within those planetary boundaries. And that's never been done before. So it's fascinating for me to read the book cover to cover because I know about your ideas because one of the places that you could have talked about them first was at the RSA when this wasn't a book, it was it was a paper. And uh, what what in, in, intrigued me about the book was that in a way, the concept donor economics can be explained in like three paragraphs, as you have just done. So the book, in a sense, isn't really an explanation of donor economics. The, the book, in a sense, is the implications of taking that view. And I felt in the end the book was, and this is why I thought it was so, one of the reasons I thought it was so really, is basically a kind of primer in nonconformist or radical economics. That's what it is. If you want to really understand all the ways in which people who aren't in the conventional view of economics, this is the place, this book is the place to go to. Well, I'm delighted if you found it that because what frustrates me about whether it's called heterodox or non-conventional economics, is that you have to read so many different literatures to get it. You have to read the feminist economics. You have to read ecological economics, complexity, institutional, behavioral, and ecological. I wanted to put them all on one page and see what happens when they dance together. So I precisely wanted to combine them all and be, create the beginnings of a new economic mindset that starts with these rather than sees them as interesting deviations from the mainstream. And that uh, takes me to a point that I think you make quite early on in the book, which is that sometimes the ideas that win aren't the ideas that are best, but the ones that are easiest to explain. And that the great advantage that conventional economics has, kind of classical economics has, is that it sounds like a very easy theory. You know, you can get your head around it pretty quickly in key concepts, like the idea that every human being is a kind of utility-maximising individual. One of the things I think the book is about is trying to make heterodox ideas a bit easier to get your head round. And you use a lot in the book pictures. So, uh, and you think that pictures are very important. They've really shaped our whole kind of worldview. Absolutely. And actually, you mentioned it before, I gave a talk at the RSA back in 2012 when this, the donut was just a discussion paper, sort of, here's an interesting idea published by Oxfam. And I was absolutely amazed by the traction that this paper had almost overnight. It was in the run-up to the UN's Conference on Sustainable Development in 2012. It just rippled through that community. People literally within a week are saying, oh, you're the donut lady. And that, that was the point at which I thought, what have I done? <laughs> but I was just amazed by the power of this picture because if you take any of the words that are on that diagram – food, health, education, climate change, water use, biodiversity. If you just listed them in a long list, nobody would blink. 
But when you draw them together in two concentric circles, which gives us a sense of a tension between, it it opened up a new conversation. And I could see it was giving people a sense of permission to ask questions they hadn't been able to ask before. So that just fascinated me about the power of pictures. And when I gave a talk at the RSA and did other presentations, I was just struck by how people were compelled by this image. That got me thinking about the work of George Lakoff, who talks about verbal framing, the power of whether we talk about tax relief, you know, cutting taxes as a relief, and that's a frame. And we should always realize that our language is framed. It made me realize also there's a visual framing that's going on all the time, and it's particularly dominant in economics. Thanks, I'd say, to Paul Samuelson, who wrote the classic textbook 70 years ago. He wrote the primer of Econ 101 for the layman, and he put pictures at the heart of his book. I went back to the economics textbooks from which I was taught, and I looked at them with fresh eyes, and I thought, if pictures are so powerful, what are the pictures I was taught that I didn't even realize were so deeply shaping my worldview? Because we analyze words, we, we debate over them, we, you know, we're really good at analytically unpicking them, but pictures slip wordlessly through our eyes into our visual cortex. They literally sit at the back of our minds and they can stay there for decades. We don't realize that they're shaping what we see, what we don't see, what we put central, what's peripheral, but they deeply inform our worldviews. And when I look back through these textbooks, I was just really struck by these pictures and how they silently, wordlessly encapsulated so much of the mindset that frustrated me. And I, I then took inspiration from Buckminster Fuller his classic quote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. So I thought, if I'm going to change this, I'm not just going to critique these pictures. The time of mere critique is past. You need to paint over them. Visual graffiti that, that needs to be painted over with new images that replace them and start to put central the new concepts in our minds. So it's it's a kind of bold strategy to uh, talk about visual images in a podcast, but um, <laughs> uh, maybe our, our, our listeners at this stage can uh, open up their browser as well, and we can look at a couple of these pictures and discuss them or a couple of these graphs. So uh, let's start with one that defines the system, what the economic system is. Tell us about that basic picture and what's wrong with it. So this is one of my favourite stories. So in the 1940s, Paul Samuelson, brilliant economist, loved his mathematics, was teaching at MIT. And post-war, lots of ex-servicemen were now coming back to university. They needed an education. They were studying engineering. They did a little bit of economics on the side. Samuelson was there at MIT and his boss came in his office one day and said, Paul, we've got a problem. The, the students hate the economics they're being taught would you take a term out of your, your your research and just come and teach a 101 course? Whatever you choose, yours will be good economics. Keep in what you want, leave out what you want. So Samuelson drew up a, a textbook published in 1948. It's just called Economics, an introduction, and it was for engineers. So he drew a diagram of the whole economy that made it accessible for engineers to understand. He drew it as a set of pipes like plumbed pipes going round and round in a circle, self-contained and closed. And it was the idea that money flows around between businesses and households. It was, of course, an essential Keynesian insight, the circularity of the flow of money and that government can boost money and reboot an economy. But the way he drew it became the way that the economy, the biggest picture of the economy has been drawn in textbooks ever since. And what it does is essentially tell us wordlessly that the economy is self-contained 
and that it's documented by the flows of money going round. So it looks as if labor and capital are the resources that make things and pay people wages and it turns back into consumer spending. The problem with this is that the economy is not self-contained and it's not just about the flow of money going round and round. It's actually deeply embedded in the the thermodynamics of the planet, daily drawing in energy and matter, whether it's living matter, rocks and minerals, and it's daily spewing out waste and pollution. So as ecological economists say, like Herman Daly, the economy is actually a thermodynamic system. Rather than thinking of it as a circular system going round and round, think of it as an hourglass, resources and energy flowing one way through. It's a completely different starting point. Then we realize that the economy is a subsystem of the earth system and actually a subsystem of society, deeply dependent upon their functioning. And it needs to function in a way that actually respects what society needs and what the earth system needs. Completely different starting point. If, if, if Samuelson were alive today, I actually respect his integrity. I think he would have taken that on board. I think he'd be mortified if he saw the diagram that's still inherited from 70 years ago and used in his name. And didn't another engineer then come along and actually try and make it? I mean, yeah. You know, with kind of cardboard and bits of corrugated yeah. tubing. Yeah, and- brilliant guy called Bill Phillips. Um, he he realised that you wanted to bring the system alive and he tried to introduce dynamics. So he wanted to see, let's use these pipes and fill them with pink water. And he had these, there's one at the London School of Economics, there's one, some in America, tanks. So he wanted to create, you know, tanks of debt or tanks of income and show the water flowing through the pipes. And this was almost the first computer model of the economy, but it was flows of water, not digits. The irony is that what nobody noticed was that in order to make his machine work, he had to go around the back and flip a switch and turn it on. He had to put energy in the system. Even that machine had a through flow of energy. And I always wish that if only instead of plugging it into the wall, they'd had a student on one of those bikes where, you know, you pedal away to generate electricity. If a student had been powering it, you couldn't quite have failed to notice that there was an external source of energy that was making this thing go round. And of course, it was generating waste heat. It is a thermodynamic system, but that was missing from the model. It's missing from the diagram. And I think it's one of the reasons why economics has actually given incredibly little attention to energy as an essential part of any economic production system. We talk about labor and capital. Where's the energy? And and how do we think about the nature of energy and how that's a constraining or enabling factor in production? But there are other problems, aren't there, with that that, uh, model? Um, Where is domestic labor, for example, included uh, in, in that model? You know, workers don't just arrive you know, fully formed at the office, they have to be uh, brought up, uh, educated, uh, looked after, loved and all of that kind of stuff. So that's missing, yeah. um, uh, which is a point I think you want to, to emphasise. And then a slightly more technical issue is it also misses out the fact that banks can just create money, which is exogenous to that system. And that, of course, is one of the things that got us into trouble in 2008. Exactly. So in, in that diagram, finance or banking is seen as it, banks merely take savings from households and wisely convert them into investments and they play this nice mediating role between savers and investors. Of course, banks actually create money. They are a pump within the system generating new supplies. And that, you know, that, that is one correction, I think, that many macroeconomic professors, when they introduce this diagram, are now making that change. But they're still not showing that the whole system depends on reproductive labor, the unpaid caring work of parents or the cooking, washing, cleaning, sweeping that goes into 
raising children and getting that labour fit and ready and the fact for that work. That's every mainly day. done by women and economists, and mainly men, would have nothing to do with it. It was probably got nothing to do with it at all. Actually, just on that, my favourite thought is of, of Adam Smith. You know this fav- famous line in his uh, Wealth of Nations: "It is not from the ben- benevolence of the butcher, the baker, and the brewer that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest." Adam was age forty-three as he wrote this book. He wasn't married. He had no kids. So he wasn't immersed in this daily unpaid economy. He was living at home with his mum. I oh, so he was way ahead of his time then. I mean, <laughs> being over 40 and relying on your mum is quite conventional now. But. <laughs> so but there was his mum making his dinner every day. And I like to think if just at that moment, as he'd written this famous line that somehow justifies the invisible hand, if mum had, you know, Margaret Douglas, his mum had said, Adam, dinner's on the table. <laughs> he could have actually had that feminist economics insight at that moment and saved us 250 years of ignoring it. But he didn't. So, yes, the unpaid caring work of parents, typically women, is missing. The living earth and the resource and through flow is missing. The recognition that banks create money, they don't merely balance the books. The recognition that governments can create money. There is a magic money tree and that it's not merely governments only spending taxes. So there's a lot of neat falsehoods that can get easily wrapped into a diagram. But you see, I think this is an interesting, deeper question, I guess, about which you raise, of course, the books about economics. And it's about the relationship between explanation and reality, which is in order to be people to be able to understand things, you have to simplify them to a certain extent. And you generate these models uh, or you generate uh, assumptions, concepts which enable you to analyse systems. Um, th- the problem is they then turn into, they start off by the people who design them as abstractions. They say, this is just a model. This is a simplification. This is just a way of thinking but then overzealous people, possibly non-economists or not very thoughtful economists, then start to say, well, this is how reality actually is. And then reality starts to mimic it. So the great example of this is the notion of homo economicus. Yes. So I don't think any intelligent economist has ever thought that a human being is an entirely fully informed person who simply uh, who continuously calculates their best interests according to some single metric and then goes out and pursues... No, nobody. You'd have to be a complete lunatic to believe that. It's quite an interesting way of understanding what goes on. It's a simple way of trying to understand what goes on in, in situations. Say, well, OK, in the end, human beings are driven by some notion of self-interest. That's a way of understanding a system. So it goes from, well, here's a tool to, to simplify reality so we can look at it, and then turns into a theory of the whole world where you get people going around saying, oh, well, actually, this is what happens in the world. The world is actually made of people who are perfectly informed pursuing their own narrow self-interest. Absolutely. And for me, this was one of the most fascinating things that I learned in the process of searching for the book because uh, models can reshape us and particularly the model we draw of ourselves, the portrait of who we tell ourselves we are. It shapes who therefore we become. Research by Robert Frank and others showed that um, at the universe and universities in Israel, for example, from year one to year two to year three, as students went further through their economics course, they said they uh, gave less value to uh, attributes like a compassion or loyalty and more value to self-interest um, competition. So the model actually becomes what starts as a model of man actually becomes a model for man. We start to mimic it. It's the performativity of the model itself. And so I mean, that's fascinating. And it's it's a challenge not just for economics, but for any intellectual discipline that claims to tell us who we are, because it actually shapes who we become. And there's hope there, isn't there? Because if we can be hoodwinked into believing that we are all 
uh, entirely self-interest utility maximizers. Presumably, we can also be persuaded that we are all largely altruistic, communally-minded people who take responsibility for the world around Yes, and perhaps, of course, the the truth lies somewhere between. David Hume said there lies in each of us something of the serpent and something of the dove. I'm raising two nine-year-old twins. You know, I see it in my kids every day. I'm sure I could see it in myself every day if I looked hard enough. But you definitely see it in children. And I think a lot of socialization, whether it's within the household, whether it's in a school or neighborhood of the world, is about bringing out those social traits of humanity um, in the face of the inherent you know, there's a competitive side and there's an altruistic or collaborative side, the, the the reciprocal nature of us. And I think this is what a lot of research over the last 30 years has shown that actually we are socially reciprocating. We collaborate when others collaborate with us. We will punish them if they if they deviate and don't do so. And we'll even punish ourselves in order to punish them. These much richer portraits of humanity have been coming through for some decades, uh, but still many students are taught First of all, they learn rational economic man. Then they talk, well, actually, there's some deviation away from that. But even most mainstream macroeconomic models still put rational economic man that you don't have to do this. There's more interesting ways of modeling, like agent-based modeling, where you start with interesting little, a multitude of little characters who might have slightly different natures, and you can program them in a model with traits, and then literally press go and see what happens, see what dynamics emerge from the way they interact with each other. That is getting much closer to something useful to humanity, I think. It's interesting to me that that what goes on in academia can have really profound consequences for society um, and for the nature of discourse. And I, I don't just mean here that obviously that academics do research and that research is taken up and those ideas are used. I'm talking about the politics of a discipline. So I'm a sociologist and I think that – and obviously this is a gross simplification – but I would argue that something pretty disastrous happened around the kind of 1970s, which is that on the one hand, economists forgot conflict, collapse, chaos, and opted for an incredibly simple, functional, mathematics-based system. Sociology went in entirely the opposite direction. So when I studied sociology in the late 70s, early 80s, there were sociologists who were interested in the way society worked. They were interested in the idea that Generally, things were kind of getting better in lots of places. And why was that? And so functionalism was alive. Mm -hmm. Then sociology, it did the kind of mirror of economics. Sociology became all about oppression. So nearly all sociology was about who is oppressing who. How can we understand the world through the prism of one class oppressing another class or men oppressing women or white people oppressing BME people or gays oppressing so straight gay. And I think this was bad for both disciplines, actually. I think we lost something in sociology when we assumed that everything was understandable only in, the level, in terms of conflict, just as you've said in your book. And it's kind of interesting to me that, that this polarisation within, within the academy is, I think, it is part of the polarisation we have in society right now. And you're in academia. Uh, how it is we avoid the academy going in those kind of tram lines, given the kind of consequences we can have. I think that's quite an important issue. And I, But yet what goes on in academia reinforces it, the nature of kind of publications and what you get rewarded for in terms of your research and all of that. That's very long-winded. It leads up to a question, which is you wanted to make a difference the way economics was taught and understood. You wanted to kind of push back against what's been going on for the last 30 years. How successful are you proving to be in that? So I have one foot in academia. 
I teach at the Environmental Change Institute in Oxford. I teach on various uh, master's degrees courses around the country, sort of small modules on it. But I have feet, a foot very firmly outside of academia as well. I go around talking about donuts, for heaven's sakes, and make, make videos of puppets rapping. And that's the playfulness that I really value. I think I am passionate about changing the way economics is taught because I'm deeply frustrated when I sit in on a first year uh, lecture, which are happening, right, September. Here comes the new year, the new students going off to university. What are they being taught? It, I'm so frustrated that nearly 30 years after I was taught, so many of the ideas have not changed and yet we know so much more. It's an incredibly slow change, particularly, I think, in economics. There's an incredible inertia. So I want to see that change, but I don't believe that I'm going to have the most impact as an advocate changing it, merely trying to change it from within. What I'm doing is working on the outside, working where the doors are open. So other disciplines actually have, beyond economics, have been much more receptive to the ideas in my book than economics departments. I'm continually invited to talk to urban studies, to architecture, to sustainability studies, um, to different disciplines that actually have sprung up and are, and are much more open to the complexity and I think more embedded in the real world. I'm also working with um, school teachers. I've, I notice this particularly here in the UK, A-level teachers seem really frustrated by the syllabus that they are required to teach and desperately want other materials to bring in. But beyond education, working with cities, I mean, I'm contacted by mayors or urban planners or architects who say, we want to bring these ideas in. And what would it mean to, to create a donut city here where we live? Can we do that? What, how could we scale the concept of the donut down to the city? But what would it mean to bring regenerative design and distributive design into the way we design the city? I'm loving working with these folks because you know, economics means household management. And I often think if you really want to meet a 21st century household manager, go meet somebody who works at the level of a city because everything is there. It's a complex social organism that just embodies all the tensions and, and issues that we need to grapple with in economics. So working at the level of cities, working with businesses that say, well, what would it mean if we wanted as a, as a company or an enterprise to say, we are helping bring humanity into this donut? What kind of enterprise would we need to be? What kind of finance would help do that? Can we create games? I want to make games, um, working with online game designers or board games designers or artists. How can we put these ideas into different forms so that a very wide audience enjoys them? So I'm working from outside of the discipline um, and really supporting the international student movement, Rethink Economics, who are students organizing around the world. Many of them study economics, realizing that the, what they're being taught, the syllabus, is not equipping them for the future they know is coming at them. And so they are demanding change from within. I think that's a very, very powerful movement. And I see myself as part of this much wider movement of people working in many different places. So I'm trying to bring in the playful responses and I'm working with the 21st century economic doers. I do think 21st century economics is going to be pra practiced first and theorized later. I think the practice is running way ahead of the theory and maybe one day economics will be wise and wake up and start to bring in and, and really theorize and teach what others have already been doing. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So as I said, Kate, the, 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 the book is in a sense a kind of textbook for, to uh, heterodox economics. Um. I'm just looking at your the titles of the seven lessons or the seven themes in your book, Change the Goal from GDP to the Donut, See the Big Picture from Self-Contained Market to Embedded Economy, Nature, Nurture Human Nature from Rational Economic Man, what we were just talking about, to mm. Social Adaptable Humans, Get Savvy with Systems, Design to Distribute, Create to Regenerate, and Be Agnostic About Growth. Now, as I say, it's an incredibly rich book, but I'm going to do something uh, slightly trivial, uh, flippant with you. Uh, I'm sure you've played that game, rock, scissors, paper. So mm-hmm. on the counter, I've got one of the chapters I'd like to talk about in depth. Uh, uh, I, I'm interested in which of the chapters at the forefront of your mind. So on the count of three, you you tell me the chapter you'd like to talk about, and I'll say the one I want to talk about. Okay. One, two, three. Systems. Complexity. Oh, it's the same one. It's the same one. <laughs> we really didn't. No one's going to believe us. No one will believe us. But we didn't rehearse that. Okay, so... What do you mean by get savvy with systems? One of the biggest moments for me in my own re-education was when I read a book by Donella Meadows called Thinking in Systems. Uh, it was a completely different way of looking at the world. And it was so exciting to learn this very, very fundamental way of seeing the world. And also, I was so angry because I thought, why was I not taught to think like this in economics? I remember in the third year of economics, we were moving away from the idea of equilibrium and there was this concept floating around called hysteresis, the idea that a system could, an, an economy could go in one direction and then somehow get stuck there. It wouldn't just slip back to this equilibrium. And I thought, oh, that sounds, that sounds really interesting suddenly that, that path dependency might be part of the story. But it was a sort of third year final concept. Now, if you get into systems thinking, that's where you begin on day one. It starts with saying the world is complex and the fundamental lenses, as it were, if you had a pair of glasses that help you be a systems thinker, I think the two lenses of your glasses, one would enable you to see reinforcing feedback. So it's this idea that 
The more you have, the more you get. So the more chickens you have, the more eggs you get. The more eggs you have, the more chickens you get. And anything in the world that spirals up, 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 or spirals down, like poor health, low income, poor health, low income. Anything that spirals in, in vicious and virtuous circles is dominated by reinforcing feedback. And then the other lens of your glasses would be balancing feedback, which is the more you have, the less you get back. So the more chickens you have, the more try to cross the road. And the more that try to cross the road, the fewer make it back. And our bodies are balanced uh, dominated by balancing feedback, right? When we get hot, we sweat, we cool back down so that we maintain miraculously almost, an almost constant temperature. Now, when you use these feedback loops of reinforcing feedback and balancing feedback and, and realize that they're going to interact and there's going to be some delay, suddenly you get a completely new way of looking at most of the interesting features of the world, whether it's a murmuration of starlings, you know, the way they fly in these incredible patterns in the sky. They're, they're picking up feedback from their nearest neighbors and responding to how the others fly. And then you realize, well, that's quite like a financial system. Everything's the prices are racking up and then they somehow crash. And there's these, these uh, oscillations and movements. You can think of your family dynamics. You know, at Christmas, there's always somebody who likes to wind things up and somebody else who's the peacemaker who calms things down again. Suddenly, I, I had on reading this book a completely new way of seeing the world. And then when I, I turned these lenses to economics, I thought this just makes so much more sense as a starting point. And, you know, after the financial crisis, when everyone, well, the economists said, well, our models just failed. So many people turned to the work of Hyman Minsky, who'd been sort of brushed under the carpet since the 19, 1970s. When you read Minsky and his financial instability hypothesis, his sentences are all written in reinforcing feedback of why things drive up, 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 and then suddenly something kicks and it tips and it crashes and it begins again. He saw it. And if we'd taken Minsky more seriously and put that complexity thinking, we could have seen much better that, a, that a, an unsustainable system has been built and that it's going to repeat these crises. So it was just the most exciting intellectual moment of realizing there's a completely different way of thinking. When I put these lenses on, I see anew. And it made me think, what else is there out there? But I'll just say the last insight it was for me was that if a system is complex, we can't control it. But we can intervene and shape it. And I think of the metaphor, and many, many economists and others have viewed this metaphor, it's like a garden. You don't control the plants in your garden. You're not in charge of them. But you can create the conditions under which they flourish or die. And so an economist is less like a, a mechanic and pulling on the levers of control, but more like a gardener, creating conditions in which that garden will flourish. And then it becomes a question of design. And that, for me, was the big leap, moving away from this language of economic laws, the laws of supply and demand, the laws of diminishing return. They are not laws. That's a false aspiration to outdated physics. I think of economics as a question of design. How do we design the structure of industries, the ownership of institutions, the financial incentives, design regulations such that we create an economy that enables us to thrive? To me, that's the most exciting adventure and it comes out of this realization that if we start with systems thinking we just see in a completely different way so, so i completely agree with that which is why i chose the same chapter as uh, as you it, it feels to me as though the problem is not that idea the problem is what on earth do you do with that idea um so uh, at the rsa we use this phrase to talk about the pursuit of change so this is based on our analysis of why it is that public policy, particularly when public policy is trying to influence behaviours and attitudes, generally fails. And we think it fails because on the one hand, it tends to be too scattergun. 
intervening in one or two parts of a complex system, as you said, and all sorts of feedbacks then occur, unpredictable consequences, sometimes negative consequences. And on the other hand, kind of path dependency, which is a phrase you've just used, which is that it takes a long time to get a mandate for action. And then you start to act and things don't work out as you think they are, but you just kind of plough on. And a colleague of mine who was a senior civil servant used this lovely phrase to describe that. He, he said, we move from evidence-based policymaking to policy-based evidence-making. Mm-hmm. As you get to the stage where actually the task is trying to prove that the thing works rather than making it work because you're kind of hedged in, right? So we use this phrase, which is think like a system, act like an entrepreneur. So try to understand problems at the systemic level, but try to act in a really agile, adaptive, experimental way. You also, Kate, use the word design. Mm-hmm. Now, policymakers hate it, traditional policymakers, when something goes wrong. It's a disaster. Designers quite like it when something goes wrong because they learn. They, you know, they learn how to adapt it. They like prototyping things. Yeah. So I think you know, we're on the same page here. The problem we have found, though, is not with the concept. The problem is our institutions are not set up to think systemically or act entrepreneurially. And indeed, and I say this as somebody who works a lot with senior civil servants and they're great people and they do their best. If you wanted to create something as unable to behave systemically and entrepreneurially, you would probably invent Whitehall. I mean, it's it's kind of, (laughs) it's silos, it's accountability systems, it's risk aversion, all of the rest of it makes. So my question to you is not, how do we get people to agree with this? I'm sure people, Mm -hmm. most people would, how on earth do you use it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. So I have had such a great time over the past year presenting, discussing the ideas of donor economics in many different countries. And particularly when I've been in the Netherlands and in Finland, I was really struck that the, the idea of design and experimentation ha- was being embraced. So in Finland, the government has around 27 policy experiments going on on the moment. They have an experimental process in place. And there's a a think tank called Demos in Helsinki, which has been designing that process for them. Excellent. Uh, Designing that process, working through. And and of course, it, it requires a different kind of politics because, for example, Finland has done this experiment in a universal basic income. When you see it reported, people say in the press and internationally, oh, they've stopped that doing that scheme. It failed. No, they stopped it because it was an experiment. They said, we're going to introduce it for this phase and then we're going to evaluate it. So you get the very old critical mentality slamming down on something that if it's so-called failed, uh, it's uh, you've got the policy wrong. If we're going to move to recognising that social systems are complex Policymakers don't yet know how to make things work. We need to be able to experiment, to test, diversify, select, and then amplify what works. Then you need to move away from the idea that an experiment failed to we learned and we need to do it differently somewhere else. And I can see that's very difficult to do in a very um, combatorial party politics situation. So politics need to change to make that kind of economics possible. And let's see how they do that in Finland, because I think they're quite in early days. In the Netherlands, I encountered places, um, for example, in Amsterdam, there's a, a place called De Kervel, which is a, a toxic wasteland that couldn't be used right, right on the edges of one of the, the rivers there. It's been turned into an experimental, um, experimental space where they've embedded lovely old barge, barges and created wooden walkways so that you're above the toxic land. It's an experimental space for using community spaces, um, solar energy, blockchain. What else can we do here? What does it look like? And it's celebrating the fact that it's experimental. So it, 
That's a physical space that's been designated, but bringing in that experimental culture. And then I've just finished reading a book by Hilary Cotton, Radical Help, where she set up a, an organization called Participle and did experimental designs of new kinds of um, welfare interventions in the UK, whether it's for aging or youth employment or housing, experimenting. And you could see that some some experiments work, some didn't. And of course, she, she then concludes there's a frustration because how do you then get this? Uh, how does this relate to the institutions that already exist? Yeah. So, yeah, I think we're in a transition. And that's why I celebrate and that's why I chose the topic of, of complexity and systems thinking because to me, this is the biggest mind shift. It needs, if we can make this shift, then policymakers no longer need stand in parliament and say, here's our manifesto and these are going to be the policies and we're going to drive them through and then we need to show that they worked because you don't know until you start trying to do them if they're going to work. So I, I, I completely agree with you, but I, I'm, I have to say at the moment, I feel a little bit pessimistic about this. So... Just to reinforce this this point about systems, um, I, I talk sometimes to corporate leaders, um, and I find that quite a lot of corporate leaders are quite thoughtful, actually, and they recognise that they face a legitimacy crisis. That capitalism, business, faces a legitimacy crisis. They don't fully understand it, but they know it's there and they want to do something about it. But often the way they describe their world is that they are in a system they know how to succeed in that system. They know what that system requires of them. So to give you an example, you're running a supermarket. You know that in order to compete with Amazon, to compete in that system, what you should probably get to is a situation in which you put everything online, you get rid of all your shops, you minimize your workforce, you squeeze them as much, you casualize them as much mm -hmm. as you can to get to a kind of 1% margin so you can possibly compete with Amazon. And they kind of know how to do that. They might not particularly want to do it, but they know how to do that. But yet they know that, that as everybody drives in the same direction to try to succeed in the system itself, that whole system is going to the cliff edge in terms of public legitimacy, in terms of the actual outcomes it's generating. And what they can't do is say, well, how, how could I do, you know, I am trapped within the logic of that system. Yeah. So I agree with you. What you urgently need is experimentation. The possibility of doing things differently in all sorts of different places in society. Maybe do, that involves devolving power as well so that cities can start to do things in very different kinds of ways. And on the other hand, you need a much more intelligent political discourse, which isn't about politicians saying, I can solve all your problems, but it's about politicians saying, I can create a space in which you can experiment. We can try things out. Yeah. But that feels like a million miles from where we are now, Kate. I don't, I, I think we have politicians, if anything, even less inclined to recognise complexity and talk about experimentation. The rise of populism is, or if, if populism is about anything, it is about the denial of complexity. So give me some hope. So I, I also don't find it so much in this country, but I think in other countries that are in a different political moment, it's there. I see it in the Netherlands. I see it in Finland. I see it in New Zealand. There's an openness, uh, redefining the purpose of what the economy is, they're, right? They're creating an economy about prosperity. There's a new alliance called the We All Alliance, which is bringing together nations that want to aspire to something different. So whether it's New Zealand, Costa Rica, Slovenia, Scotland, putting human prosperity at the heart of what that national project is. And I hear and see in those an openness and make, and that could be shut down, right? That you can have a honeymoon period or a, an open opportunity. And then when you get it wrong, slam, the, the political systems come down on you. I don't know what will happen to those, but I, when I speak outside of the political structures, 
talk to people. I go around festivals. I go around, you know, literary festivals. And so many people are desperate for hope and a different system and open to something different. So I see hope appearing there. It's like the grass. It, it's resurgent in local communities. So this but, is, but so this is important, I think, because this is your book is a radical book. You're very critical of the system, but I think I'm hearing you say that the most important thing that you can do right now is not have slogans, not to attack neoliberalism or whatever, valid though that might be, but actually to try to do things differently, to to demonstrate, to find little spaces where you can show whether it's within your organisation dealing having less hierarchy and showing that people can work in a much more kind of egalitarian way, or in your community demonstrating a different kind of relationship between the local between the, the state and and, and, and the voluntary yes. sector, wherever it is, radical politics is not about sloganeering and demonstrating. It's about doing things differently in our day-to-day lives. Because the easiest comeback to new economic thinking is there's no alternative. It's not proven, you know, whether it's in the textbook, there is no alternative to teach in economics or there is no alternative economic system. You have to show there is. And I'm just, again, you know, Buckminster Fuller, you don't change things by fighting, critiquing, protesting only the old reality. Create the new one, show it, demonstrate it, make it visible. And what I really wanted to do in this book was make it visible. One of my favorite feedbacks I get from anybody, people say to me on Twitter or, or if I meet them at a festival or something, say they say, your book gives a, a, an overarching framework to what I'm doing. In fact, my favourite feedback is a young woman came to me with a copy of the book and she said, would you sign this? My dad bought it. He read it and he gave it to me and he said, I think I finally understand what it is you're doing. And I really loved that it enabled one generation from another in, to another in the family to understand this different worldview, have to make it visible. But I just want to come back to the point you were talking about uh, people in corporations. I agree, I've met... Since I left Oxfam and I'm apparently, you know, in a university, it's wonderful the different way that people speak to me when they're in corporations and very openly, very thoughtful people. But they'll tell me, you know, we want to transform our business, whether it's a fast moving consumer goods company, let's say. We'd like to transform it. We'd like to be ethical. We'd like to have uh, fair labor rights and, and sustainable sourcing. But every quarter, I'm under pressure to show we've got growing sales, growing market share growing profit margins, this holy trinity of the pressure. So again, this is a design question. And I, I bring the design question to the enterprise itself. How is your enterprise design? Look inside. It's like corporate psychotherapy. Look within yourself and see how are you purposed? Um, how are you networked? Who are you networking with? But, but most deeply, how are you owned? Because whether you're owned by private family, by the stock market, by shareholders, by, um, by your employees, that is going to determine how you're financed and the quality of finance. So d- the design of the enterprise itself is a constraint, not just the political system with, within which enterprise is happening. And one of the most radical things an enterprise can do is transform its purpose and its ownership and financing structures, because then that changes what it can be and do in the world. Which would take us to another chapter in the book, which is about not fixating on growth and thinking more deeply and holistically about purpose. But to have that conversation, uh, you're going to have to buy the book, which I would strongly encourage you uh, to do. Uh, Kate, it's been fantastic uh, to talk to you. Yeah, real pleasure. Thank you.